0: Hello and welcome to Star's Politics Podcast. I'm Greg Weaver and I'm here today with reporters Stephanie Wong and Tony Cook to talk about uh, the week in politics. And we're going to start off today by uh, discussing uh, the appointment of the new president to uh, Ivy Tech Community College, former Lieutenant Governor Sue Elsperman. And Stephanie, you've been involved in covering Ivy Tech for for a while now. Did you, how did you uh, end up viewing uh, Sue Elsperman's appointment? Uh, Was it a political appointment or was it an appointment based on uh, qualifications?
1: Well, I think her connection with Governor Pence put her in such a tricky situation where you can't view her um, hiring as president of Ivy Tech without looking at the politics of it. I mean, she was really clear when she Uh, was voted to get the job, to try to distance herself from that by saying, hey, listen, trustees approached me about the job and I approached Governor Pence about it um, to kind of dispel the idea that he may have pushed her out for a potentially better running mate. Um, And and I think the real tragedy here is that with all of the politics, her qualifications do tend to get lost. I mean, Sue Elsperman has a PhD in industrial engineering. She was a founding director of a center at USI, and she does bring a lot of business and political experience to the job. So its it would be really difficult to say that she isn't qualified for the job, but it would also be really difficult to say that politics didn't play some role in this.
2: And there is a political role to the job. I mean, these institutions are dependent on state funding. That is probably the single... Biggest determining factor in their ability to expand or build new buildings or any of that kind of thing. And and that affects tuition, obviously. And so, you know, to say that politics shouldn't play a role in the job, I think, you know, that's pretty naive. Now, you know, to what extent should it play a role? That's a fair question, but certainly it does play a role.
0: Yeah, and we should probably back up a little bit and kind of explain some of the uh, circumstances that led up to um, Ivy Tech making this decision, so it's been a, cou- been a few months ago now uh, uh, when it was announced that Sue Elsborough would be uh, leaving the position as lieutenant governor under Governor Mike Pence to seek uh, the presidency at Ivy Tech, um, so she left uh, the job as lieutenant governor before the Ivy Tech board made its decision. Uh, the governor in the meantime uh publicly endorsed her uh uh her appointment uh, as president uh and he sent a letter of reference uh of support uh to the Ivy Tech board um uh, saying that he thought that she would be a great a great Ivy Tech president um and it should also be noted that he appoints uh the members of the board of trustees at Ivy Tech so all of those circumstances led people to you know, question uh, whether this was a political appointment or not. It's, so it's really hard to divorce the politics from the decision making. But as Stephanie was noting, she, uh, Sue Osperman also has a number of credentials that makes her qualified for the job. So that's kind of the position we were in. Um, you also can't overlook uh, kind of the political history of Ivy Tech, which has a tendency to uh, appoint or employ state lawmakers and people in state government uh, in in jobs uh, related to Ivy Tech. There have been a number of them over the years. So it, it's, it's made Ivy Tech more of a local political animal than a lot of the other state colleges that are out there. Is that kind of what you saw, Stephanie? Of-
1: yeah, I mean, Ivy Tech has gotten a lot of flack in the past for hiring state lawmakers into these jobs and people would say that they're double dipping because they're drawing A salary as a lawmaker and then a salary from a public institution like Ivy Tech, even though they would take leaves from their jobs when they're in the legislature. Of course, this is different because uh, Sue Elsperman is no longer lieutenant governor. But, of course, the weight of the position that she held, you can't sort of discount that. At the same time, I'd say that, like... uh, Colleges are moving to sort of more unconventional choices when we talk about presidents. Um, Obviously, we've got former Governor Mitch Daniels leading Purdue University, and I think generally a lot of people are interested in uh, what kind of outsider experience somebody could bring to the job instead of looking to somebody who's had a long history in academia, which is what one of the other finalists for the Ivy Tech presidency had.
2: Yeah, and and as you guys have both said, there's a really rich, I don't know if that's the right... Adjective or not, but rich history uh, of this. And, and, yeah, I mean, even look at uh, who's running against Pence for governor. You have John Gregg, former Speaker of the House. He was president of Vincennes. You know, not exactly the same thing. But still, these university positions, um, I think, increasingly are becoming seen as, as possible political either stepping stones or Stepping out of politics and into that Um, But there certainly seems to be a really strong connection in this state for sure between Politics and these jobs
1: well and those jobs can be really lucrative jobs, right? So we see former Speaker of the House Pat Bauer I mean I, he makes more than hundred and twenty five thousand dollars as a vice president for Ivy Tech um, and you know Sue Elberman is going into a role um, that paid its previous president three hundred thousand dollars a year with other perks and she hasn't finished negotiating her contract but you know when you 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 can't sort of ignore the fact that people with political histories are getting with big names are getting paid a lot of money at these public institutions.
2: And they, and these jobs pay more than the political positions that these people held. So Mitch Daniels is making more now than he was as governor. Elsperman will be making more. A lot she, more. Than she was as lieutenant governor. Bauer makes way more than he made, made even when he was, um, you know, leading the Democrats in the House. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost you know, in terms of pay, it's a step up.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of of money and politics, we had another story uh, come together this week uh, related to to Donald Trump, uh, the presumptive uh, Republican presidential nominee, uh, and uh, his uh, relationship to Carrier. Um, Tony, can you talk about that a little bit? Um, Yeah, sure. So uh, a lot of our listeners have probably
2: heard uh, Donald Trump talk about Carrier. He's talked about um, this is the uh, heating and air conditioning company that is moving 1,400 jobs from a plant on the west side of Indianapolis and uh, moving production to Mexico. So, you know, you have 1,400 people here losing their jobs. An affiliated company also in Huntington is, is laying people off for a total, I think, of over 2,000 jobs being lost in Indiana. Trump has railed against Carrier as an example of, you know, something he would stop if he was president. He says he would, uh, quote, tax the hell out of companies like Carrier when they try to import their products back into the U.S. to sell them here after making them in Mexico or wherever. And so it's been, it was, it's been the centerpiece of his campaign and especially of his campaign here in Indiana which he ultimately won the primary here and it was that night that Ted Cruz dropped out and the following day that day or two the Kasich dropped out and so it really sealed the deal for him um, and so you know now we have Trump um, filing a financial disclosure form that candidates have to file and it shows that he profited f- uh, from an investment in United Technologies which is the company that owns carrier and its affiliate in, affiliate in Huntington. And so um, the the documents show that Trump earned uh, interest income of between $2,500 and $5,000 um, from that investment during, you know, roughly the past year. Um, his financial disclosure form from a year ago also shows him um, making money from an investment in the company about the same amount. And on that form, it shows that at that time, at least, he had uh, somewhere uh, up to $200,000 invested in the company. Um, So, yeah, we wrote about that over the weekend or uh, over, I guess. This week? Yeah, this week. And the reader response has been very interesting. A lot of Trump supporters um, upset with the article. Um, They say because of the size of the investment that, you know, it wasn't they didn't think it was newsworthy, but I guess I felt like, um, you know, given how central that issue was to his campaign, especially to his campaign here. And the fact that the jobs that we're talking about being lost were Indianapolis jobs, you know, it was very relevant to our audience. Um, you know, I thought readers would be interested in any connection between Trump and this company, no matter the size of the connection. Um, so that's why we chose to, to write about it. And um, so, I mean, it's been interesting, though, that the Trump folks are really upset by that.
0: Yeah, but I think, I mean, kind of the issue here is, um, if you're gonna criticize a company and its actions, why would you support it with your investment? Um, and that's really what it, what it comes down to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, not only uh, might people be interested in it because of, you know, sort of the, I think the hypocrisy of that, um, but um, also just because he, you know, he made it such a large issue when he was in Indiana, and he made it an issue in many stump speeches across the state as he was running for president. That's um, right. and, uh, I And mean, the other thing is, if, if any other candidate had done a similar thing, uh, we would have reported that as well. So it's not like uh, we're picking on him. We, you know, with the, right. There's uh, some uniformity in our coverage, and we would, those are the kind of things we would report about any candidate. Um,
2: right, and a lot of and a lot of times stories like this, you know, we might leave to more national type news outlets. But because carrier and the layoffs are happening here in our state, and he you know criticized the company over and over for that, um, I felt like it was you know, it only made sense to take a look at any investments he might have in that company. Um, so, you know, if Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders or any of his Republican competitors, um, you know, were criticizing a company here in Indiana for laying people off, we'd certainly
0: look at that as well. Yeah. So, well, um, let's move on to looking at some things that happened in Congress this past week. Uh, we had two Indiana congressmen get involved in some some pretty divisive issues. Um Uh, Todd Rokita, who was uh, proposing changes to the federal uh, school lunch program, uh, and Luke Messer, uh, who uh, filed a bill in response to the Obama administration's uh, guidance on uh, the use of bathrooms uh, by transgender students. Um, But let's start off with with the free lunch program. So uh, Representative Rokita uh, made a proposal uh, to... Uh, reduce uh, the number of schools that are eligible to provide uh, free lunch to all of uh, their students um, and it would have affected uh, in more than 100 schools in Indiana uh, about 58,000 students um, that bill did end up coming out of committee this week um, uh, but there seemed to be a lot of uh, backlash some schools not liking that uh,
1: they're calling it a partisan food fight. Yes. So, <laughs> what Rokita's bill would do is, you know, change that threshold to focus on schools that have a higher percentage of students um, who qualify for free or reduced lunch, and he's portraying it as uh, focusing efforts on students who need the assistance the most and while realizing some savings and being able to reinvest those savings. And then there are others who criticize the move because some students would want to get that lunch. You know, maybe their families didn't apply for the program. Maybe they're on the cusp of qualifying for the program. And so there's an argument that it does help a lot of needy students um, who might not necessarily fall into that bucket of the you know the threshold that they look at.
0: Yeah, and Tony, can you talk a little bit about the changes in the threshold and how schools qualify? Yeah, so
2: from what I understand, the, um, the, right now, a school can, all of its students can qualify for free, and, for free lunch if uh, 40% of those students automatically meet the criteria because their families are receiving other kinds of uh, public assistance. And so uh, this would change the threshold from forty percent to sixty percent. So it would be, you know, more difficult for schools to qualify to have all of their students receive free lunch.
0: Yeah, and so yeah, and then you know some of the criticism uh, of that change has been that um, if you have a school with forty percent uh, of students qualifying, that's a school that has a pretty high need across the board, probably. Uh, from a socioeconomic standpoint, um, and that uh, by providing free lunch to all the students, it takes away the stigma uh, of uh, students who get free lunch and are somehow singled out because they have a different color meal ticket or whatever it might be when they go through school lunch line. Uh, So it makes it easier to provide it uh, to everyone without that stigma being attached Um, So anyway, it's gonna be an interesting bill to follow over the next uh, few weeks, Um, but I think the general consensus is that it's a measure that will have some difficulty uh, succeeding, just because generally I don't think uh, people in Congress want to be seen as taking free lunch away from anyone, so that may be a a hurdle to overcome. Um, On the issue of uh, uh, bathrooms uh, and transgender students, um, Congressman Messer um, this week uh, uh, proposed a response to the Obama administration's guidelines that encourage schools uh, to allow transgender students to use uh, the bathroom of uh, the gender that they identify with. Um, Stephanie, can you talk a little bit about that proposal? And
1: Yeah, a lot of Republicans in Congress think that President Obama overstepped with that guideline, that his administration overstepped with that Um, you know they prefer to leave that decision up to local school districts and uh, what Messer is proposing is not having schools be penalized um, by having their federal funding blocked um, if they choose not to follow that guideline and of course there's backlash against this federal guideline across the country you see states and school districts who are saying that they're not going to abide by that Um, in Indiana it's controversial because you know state superintendent of public instruction glenda ritz welcomed the guidelines whereas governor pence said that he would prefer for the issue to be left up to states and districts to decide um you know and we've yet to see how that's going to shake out in individual districts across indiana um, whether there are school districts that will be changing their policies to conform with the federal guidelines um whether they m- might choose not to go into it at all there are a lot of districts that say that they already handle this on a case-by-case basis
0: So, and what do you see uh, being the impact of uh, the Obama administration's guidelines? Will schools suffer any consequences if they don't uh, follow?
1: Well, there's always the risk, you know, that if you're not um, abiding by what the U.S. Department of Education tells you you need to do by law, um, that you could lose some federal funding. And so that's kind of the threat that's being put out there with uh, Obama's administration saying that they're going to interpret Title IX um, to protect students based on their gender identity, um, I think that it's a really, really controversial issue that we are going to see shake out over the long term, and um, you know of course, things might change in November.
0: Yeah, and it's been interesting to kind of see this issue uh, you know it's been talked about a lot at the state level and now it's moving to the federal level and so. It's in the courts. It's in Congress. It's in North Carolina. (laughs) It's in North Carolina. So um, just a lot of activity on a number of fronts on this issue, so it's going to be interesting to follow. Um, uh, There was also another poll that came out um, this week uh, looking at uh, the governor's race between Republican Mike Pence and Democrat John Gregg. And um, not surprisingly, I guess, it's still close. What, uh, Tony, can you tell us about what the poll found? Yeah, so, I mean, this is just the latest poll over
2: several of several over the past few months that have shown the race in a virtual dead heat. You know, this one showed uh, Pence leading John Gregg by about four points. And, um, you know, that's about the same as the margin of error. Uh, So it's, uh, you know, still a very close race. The poll also found that Pence's job approval ratings have remained uh, similar to what we've seen in past polls in terms of, um, you know, it's either even or somewhat disapproving of his job performance. Um, So, you know, those numbers haven't moved very much. The campaign is really just now sort of getting going now that the primary is over and you see uh, John, Greg, and Mike Pence both with their first campaign advertisements as of last week. And so I think we're really gonna see attention start turning to this race, and it'll be interesting to see in future polls whether that shifts the numbers very much.
0: Yeah, so certainly the governor's race is gonna be a big focus uh, of our political coverage over the next several months, uh, heading into the November election, and it's, Uh, certain to heat up (laughs) between now and then. So, well, uh, that's uh, it for us this week uh, on the Politics Podcast. Uh, We thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.